Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Today we are on Barry Maurer. He's on the cutting edge of research into cognitive immunity and the threats posed to it by the intersection of illiberal forces and electronic media. Barry's the author of Deadly Delusions, Right-Wing Death Cult, and The Cognitive Immune System, The Mind's Ability to Dispel Pathological Beliefs. Barry collaborated on the DARPA-funded project Deep Agent, a framework for information spread and evolution in social networks. And Barry teaches symposiums uh, on cognitive immunity, including the age of mass delusion, why are people fooled, and propaganda and pseudoscience. He's also part of the Mental Immunity Project and CIRCE, uh, which aim to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. Barry, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And so in one of his articles, Barry wrote, and I really love this, and we're going to talk about why in a second. Some bad ideas get past the mind's defenses and then hijacks the, hijack the mind's immune system. These bad ideas recruit the mind's defenses to protect themselves, even if that recruitment ends up hurting the mind that hosts it. This process is similar to what happens with metastatic cancer, which spreads from one location in the body to a distant one. Metastatic cancer flips elements of the body's immune system, recruiting them to defend tumors and attack the body. When bad ideas hijack the mind's immune system, these bad ideas become resistant to correction and the mind becomes susceptible to more bad ideas. Bad ideas spread in the mind and can eventually take it over. So this is really interesting. And there's so many points that we could talk about it with respect to this. But the thing that, you know, I think a lot of people who, uh, let's say amateur, uh, I guess, I don't know what you would call us, uh, people who are who are sort of amateur scientists, right? So people who love science, but aren't necessarily professionals in it. Uh, the way that we would think of evolution is that everything is pretty much adaptive, right? So to think that there's something that could spread in a way that's not just maladaptive, but resembles cancer, and the mind would defend it seems so counterintuitive, right? Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that and your understanding of why? Uh, well, first of all, why is cancer a pretty good model for mental immunity or, you know, the lack thereof? And then also, how is it? Yeah, how is it that these bad ideas? How is it that the mind protects them like it would a tumor? Right. Well, um, you know, I was pretty familiar with the mental immunity model, and um, the the most common analogy is to infection. Right. That there's sort of like a foreign agent that spreads uh, through you know through different bodies if it's biological or through different minds if it's you know ideological um and uh i re had read an article uh in a science journal and i don't remember now what what it was uh specifically the journal but um it was about metastatic cancer and essentially the um shift in science's view of it um that for a long time, the view was uh, attack the tumor, right? Mm -hmm. That the the tumor grows, and then the idea is we have to shrink it, and um, you know, so everything is aimed at the tumor. All the weapons we have in medicine. Um, the alternative view was that um, equally important, if not more important than focusing on the tumor, was focusing on the environment in which the tumor grows, right? So essentially some people are more susceptible to cancers than others. Some parts of the body are more susceptible to cancers than others. So um, there was a you know scientist in the 1800s who brought this up, who asked, 
why doesn't cancer always spread to an adjoining area, right? If it starts, it, it, if it starts in the hip, why doesn't it move down the leg? Why does it instead move to the lungs? Um, and so he was asking, well, is, is there something more, um, you know, conducive uh, to the tumor spreading to the lungs? Um, so that became known as the seed and soil hypothesis. Um, so it was equally important to focus on the, the soil than on the seed. Um, and then uh, with, uh, you know, more understanding of the immune system and uh, genetics and so on, uh, they were able to look at specifically how parts of the immune system would, uh, were recruited by the tumor to protect the tumor. Um, and so, of course, some of the new treatments that come out of that are immune treatments for cancer, which have to do with maybe turning off the ability of the tumor to recruit uh, the immune system against the body. Um, why do these things develop in the first place? I, I mean, I think usually the understanding of cancer is that... Um, cells have these kind of on-off switches, right? That, that at a certain point in your life, uh, particularly in childhood or adolescence, um, cell replication uh, is kind of, you know, uh, needs to happen rapidly, right? And other times in your life that has to shut down so that the, they don't keep reproducing endlessly, right? So um, it's a mistake it's a mistake in the code, I would say, right? It's very complicated code we're dealing with in terms of cells. And I would say the same thing's true in the mind that, you know, that, that our ability to process information, um, to, uh, you know, navigate a world that's uh, very complicated, um, it's bound to not be perfect, right? <laughs> So evolutionarily, right, we're always kind of, we're limited by our senses and then we're limited by our capacity to process the complexities of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and our cells are the some, same way. Sometimes they go haywire. The fact is probably most of us have some kind of cancer in our bodies most of the time, which is just those cells, you know, uh, they're not turning off when they should turn off, but our immune system recognizes it and shuts it down. Wow. When we actually have a medical problem is when, you know, the cell flips the immune system or when uh, the uh, tumor is able to run out of control. So the fact is probably cancer is way more normal than we would uh, assume it is. You know, it's mm -hmm. probably really in all of us. Um, and I suppose maybe the next question would be, what is, if we were to say this, you know, this analogous, right? Mm -hmm. Um what is the tumor in our mind, so to speak? And then what's going on that um, that the mind kind of comes to defend this this tumor yeah. or rather uh, yeah. ideology or infectious idea? So to me, the tumor is denial. <laughs> like that's the core tumor. Uh, it, the, the introduction of the tumor is some kind of denial. Um and the denial might be uh, any kind of denial, right? Um, so be, children, for example, are very 
vulnerable to shock and distress. Uh, and so their denial might be, you know, uh, my family's okay when everything around them is telling them that it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's adaptive to a point, right? I like a certain amount of denial is necessary to get us through sometimes some, some hard times, but, um, if it persists, then that denial turns into delusion. Mm -hmm. And delusion is really when the denial is kind of dug in and has defenses, starts to develop defenses around it. Um, so delusion is just denial on steroids. Um, and so when we look at pathological beliefs, you know, I would point to things like um, climate denial, right? Um, or I, I would actually call it climate delusion because, um, you know, denial would be maybe the first time you, or, you know, a brief moment when you sort of deny what's obvious that the climate is changing. It's a result of human activity. Um, and the delusion is once that's really settled in and no amount of counter information or counter argument is going to break through. Um, so then it's become like a tumor. Um, and what's interesting about the spread of that is apparently um, uh, the what I what I've been reading in the literature is that people who admit to a certain amount of denial in their life or delusion, um, it starts to spread. So the delusion doesn't just contain itself to one thing; it starts to spread. And this is where you get conspiracism, right? That. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not just that there's that the climate isn't changing or that you know uh, the humans aren't changing it or something like that. It's also that climate scientists are trying to you know take over uh, the political system. It's part of a conspiracy uh, that um, the media is lying to us and so on. So in other words, the the denial and the delusion start to spread and spread and spread, and there's no containment possible anymore to to limit that yeah i think there's sort of a core set of beliefs i mean i've talked about this on other podcasts obviously you know so that i used to be a conspiracy theorist once upon a time and i think there was a core kind of set of beliefs that informed everything else you believe so if i had to kind of try to you know reconstruct it now i think one of the major ones was that you can't trust mainstream media uh you can't trust the systems of power any systems of power religion government etc so like none of them matter uh you can't even necessarily trust people who are connected to those systems of power even if they're like you know pawns or whatever like the kind of lower people on the rungs of the ladder and the idea was essentially it was um it was very much like in in my mind like living in the soviet union where it's like everybody's kind of out for themselves and you kind of have to figure out how to navigate the world on your own so a lot of it is based on paranoia and i would argue that those kind of sets of paranoid beliefs those core beliefs they kind of end up informing everything else and you know what's funny about those beliefs on the surface they actually seem somewhat rational how? right well think about it if if for example uh, someone put out that belief, at least, that, oh, well, people in power uh, probably would like to maintain that power, and therefore, they'll uh, construct or rather uh, impose either certain systems or or rather um, put put things into place that'll sort of keep them in right. that place of power. Like Machiavellian. Right? So, you know, on one level, you, you could look at that and say, okay, there's something rational about it. Like, oh, this makes sense to me. 
Right. Well, because this now makes sense to me, um, this sort of validates that belief. Like you're looking for rationalizations to sort of yeah. validate these existing beliefs. And Absolutely. it almost happens automatically, right? Um, because of that, that the yeah. root of, of your yeah. of the thought or belief. Yeah, and, and Barry, and would you say that a lot of this stuff, because there is some semblance of truth, where like, you know, I mentioned the Soviet Union, the idea is that where you can look at systems of power who are corrupt and who misuse their power. Therefore, you know, if you do have a paranoid mindset, it's much easier to latch onto those as confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I will say, you know, I was the same way. Um, I was a, uh, in high school, sort of exposed to, anarchist libertarian anarchism you know and my uh it, more of a left-wing one than a right-wing one but sometimes i look back at it and i go well had some right-wing elements in it unfortunately but yeah like uh, chomsky right yeah yeah mm -hmm. right like chomsky um and and the thing is that i respect a lot of chomsky's critique of media um and it's it's pretty accurate but um there's uh, there are other so this is where it gets really complicated, I think, is when you want to talk to people about this and how to discern what's true and what's not true, um, you kind of have to rely on experts, right? The do your own research thing doesn't really work unless you have a framework in which to do your research. So I'm an academic. To me, like the scholarly framework is the proper way to do research um, where, you know, you've got reliable sources, you've got a checks and balance, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but so, so one can pick up a book by Chomsky and read it and say, oh, you know, I completely understand the media and how it's structured in this way and that way. Mm -hmm. um, and what you've got is a pretty good perspective of media, but you would have to do more study and read other people um, who are also experts to get a more balanced view. Um, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of someone like Jacques Ellul, um, who wrote about propaganda. But even, propag even Ellul has a kind of totalizing view of media. He even called it total propaganda. I mean, that was his. Um, but it's quite a different model than Chomsky's model. So really what we have, you know, if you do academic study around these kinds of things, we're not able to study everything in the media all the time. And so what we come up with are models and our models are pretty good and our models are better than not having models. And those models sometimes compete with each other. Um, a model is never going to be identical with truth, but it's our best way of understanding truth. So, um, you know, what I try to impress on people is just the complexity and the seriousness of the undertaking, right? Um, and also in terms of the attitude that we go in with, um, you know, there's a fine line between skeptical and cynical, right? Mm -hmm. and so like, um, it's hard even within a system that seems totalizing to understand that there are conflicting forces going on, right? Um, because it seems total, right? Like all the media is corporate propaganda. Right. Well, that's not entirely true. There are always contested, uh, uh, you know, there are battles going on all the time within the media, behind the, some of them are behind the scenes, some of them appear in public. 
um, there's never a unified front, right? Even within an organization like Fox News, there's not a unified front, right? Yeah, it's, right. it's more complex than we would want to, you know, picture it. So the difference is skepticism is where I'm paying attention to this complexity. And then cynicism is where I'm just going to paint it all with the same brush. You know, it's all corrupt, ignore it all, throw it all out. Um, now, I would almost say that uh, is entirely true of right-wing media. So maybe accuse me of cynicism, but, you know, and I pay attention to right-wing media because I am interested in the conflicts going on within it. Um, but it is largely a poisonous wasteland. Um, right. So, you know, I think I can, it's it's healthy to, I believe, have a general concept of this is in general a healthy system. This is in general an unhealthy system. So I would say of corporate media, in general, it's an unhealthy system. Um, but there are still currents and forces within it that need to be, you know, thought separately from just a blanket kind of condemnation. Right. Well, you know, on some end, I think somebody might accuse you and they might say something along the lines of, well, you know, but then who should the gatekeepers be? Okay, you're saying that one set of media are good and then, or at least not bad. And then the other one are really like poisonous and evil. So, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm sure you're not going to that extreme, but it's something along those lines. So well, how do we then make sense of who the gatekeepers should be? Because on the one hand, there's complete cynicism and they're saying, okay, we shouldn't trust experts. But then another person might say, well, okay, you're saying trust some experts, but not others. Let's, let's just agree that Fox News are to some extent experts right so they'll say okay you're saying trust some experts but not others but then how do you how do you decide and who gets to decide who the experts are who are the gatekeepers good point um so i'm all about uh gatekeeping and um part of it is to recognize that gatekeeping is already a function in every institution that we participate in um and so the question is um what is good gatekeeping versus bad gatekeeping, right? I can almost point to Elon Musk and say, that's the, like the epitome of bad gatekeeping, right? It's just like flood the zone with Nazis and then, um, you know, censor anyone who disagrees with me, right? That's, that's terrible gatekeeping. So um, we do have new institutions like social media where gatekeeping hasn't been invented or developed yet to the to to the point where it should be right and if you look at the history of media going back to the printed book for example um the early history of the printed book is not a very good uh you know it was not a particularly healthy uh media environment because uh, anyone who could afford to print a book could print total lies and propaganda and you know, distortions and whatever, and put it out. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so certain kinds of gatekeeping practices, it wasn't necessarily who was the gatekeeper, was it as important as certain gatekeeping practices were instituted. So for example, um, copyright, you know, um, uh, authorship, um, basically tells you who's responsible for putting this out um, and uh, you know who who owns this property in a sense um, and um, so we haven't really come up with uh, the new practices this is why the electronic era we're in now is so dangerous um, is because it's kind of like 
at a much higher, more risky scale, what happened in the early invention of print. And we know what happened in the early invention of print is you had uh, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and hundreds, you know, 150 years of, of brutal war and mass killing uh, mm -hmm. and, and insane propaganda on all sides. Um, so we could kind of look at uh, as well, like at the 20th century in the same way with radio, uh, you know, uh, other sorts of mass media like film, right? And look at what the Nazis and what the Soviets did with this technology and what the Americans did too, mm -hmm. right? That in a sense, um, the gatekeepers were either the state or they were corporations. Um, and of course, my, you know, my preference would be we make gatekeepers kind of like, uh, you know, to maybe more like uh, in academia where we have, you know, librarians sort of, you know, they're the gatekeepers for what goes in the library and how, how that gets used and, um, and, and scholars determine sort of like what becomes, what gets taught in the classroom or what gets published as um, research and so on. You know, so so academia is a field where gatekeeping is very developed and in other areas, it's not, it's not as much, right? Um, so I would say it's more practices than people. Um, and then we've allowed certain institutions to just run out of control. And that was deliberate, right? We can look at the um, Telecommunications Act, for example, in the 19, late 1990s, and say that was that was a deliberate um, decision to turn all this new media over to the control of corporations uh, to let them do with it as they wish. So um, you know we're reaping the consequences of that. So I suppose in, in the age of social media, you know, because we don't have um, really essentially any gatekeeping in place or, or rather maybe we do. I mean, yeah, you, you could censor people for, you know, um, I suppose hate speech or uh, people. Yeah, they suspend accounts. Sure, sure. Or misinformation, disinformation. Um, mm -hmm. However, so then I suppose, you know, since mental immunity uh, is sort of comprised of um or rather, like having a good mental immunity is comprised of having, um, or rather, it it goes between. It, there's the combo of internal and external um, cognitive barriers, right? So normally, when we're talking about academia, right, an external barrier would include, like, let's say, these gatekeepers, like peer-reviewed uh, journals or articles. There's a system in place where you can actually get reliable information, right, and and be able to sort of research that, and then maybe not even put the onus of the research necessarily on yourself, um, you can refer to experts in that field, right? G generally speaking. Um, but I suppose in regards to social media, I mean, the onus is kind of on us, right? And our um, belief assessment tools. And, and those are the things that I suppose at the moment, be because the onus is on us, we have to really, as a society, really de essentially develop those belief assessment tools. Right, because right, it's yeah. so saturated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely, um, I guess, a little bit uh, odd man out in the mental immunity community, <laughs> in the sense that uh, I do believe that personal responsibility for mental immunity is important, but 
it's not nearly as important or nearly as effective as institutional responsibility for mental immunity, right? And um, I'll point out that the internet is an institution, right? It is, it is, um, uh, you know, there there is a committee, I forget the name of it, that's sort of like responsible for the internet. And we don't mm -hmm. normally hear about them because they don't hardly do anything. But <laughs> yeah. the point is that's a decision too, right? To sort of just let things go. Um, but that's almost like, you know, um, saying, well, let's just let anything whatsoever get into our water supply, right? That's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I've published on censorship a few times. And also, I would say, having been a sort of Chomsky and uh, coming out of that tradition where I was a free speech absolutist, if you could oh. call Oh, yeah. I would love to talk about that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I flipped almost completely 180. Um, mm -hmm. And so partly my point is that there's always censorship, right? And, and, and censorship is internal as well as external. And it's institutionally based in the sense that you know when, you generally know when uh, you're in a situation, say at work, or say, uh, you know, in your family or whatever, when you're going to say something that is going to be, um, you know, frowned on or discouraged, right? Um, which isn't to say you should never speak up and you should never speak your mind and you shouldn't take chances to, you know, get the heat if you really feel that's necessary. But, um, that what you're recognizing in that moment is that there is a boundary um, and that boundary is either uh, codified or it's in, in some formal way as a policy or it's, or it's informal. Um, and that we have all kinds of things like Trump, for example, right now is claiming free speech in relation to the January 6th stuff and the you know attempt to subvert the election and the prosecutor is saying, this is nothing to do with free speech. This is acts, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, you can engage in a, in, in a conspiracy to do something illegal in which your only act is speech, right? Uh, and yet that speech is illegal. Mm -hmm. It's in the furtherance of an illegal end. Um, and so we already sort of, you know, we say Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of speech. But the fact is we have all kinds of laws respecting the freedom of speech. Like you can't, you can't commit perjury. That's speech. You know, there's you can't all tell sorts, somebody you'll kill them. You can't. Yeah. I mean, you, you shouldn't be able to, although it's extremely common now that uh, that goes unpunished, but that should be punished. Um, and uh, so so here's sort of where I come come down is I noticed that in the 19 50s or 60s, maybe 70s, there was some changes in free speech. Um, two that I noticed particularly, and one was one was affirmative and one was negative. The uh, affirmative one was that no smoking signs went up all over the place. Okay, in other words, there's speech is mandated in places of business, right? Um, that um, the government can say, you must include this speech, whether you agree with it or not, 
right? This speech must be in this place. Um, the other is that you had to take down signs that said whites only, okay? And I think generally, like if we ask people, is it good that we have no smoking signs up? Is it good that we take whites only signs down? People would say yes, because um, the externalities or the costs of not doing those things is too high. Mm -hmm. And so we regulate speech around certain kinds of things where we recognize that the costs are too high. Um, and this comes back to the whole point I was, um, that you quoted from the, at the beginning of this conversation, which is that um, the tumor is unlikely to spread to an environment that is hostile to it, right? And so controlling speech is critically has to be seen in terms of um, creating environments right. where pathological beliefs grow or they're resisted. And so, for example, in the town nearest to me here, uh, uh, the town is full of uh, rainbow imagery. So like the crosswalks are rainbow, like rainbow flags, you know. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's not an openly hostile sign, yet it does create uh, an unwelcoming environment for homophobia, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we can create environments that are hostile to pathological beliefs, just like we wanna create environments in the body that are hostile to tumors through affirming signs, right? Um, and the other point I wanna make is, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be homophobia. It, this isn't going to cure homophobia, right? right? Just having rainbow flags everywhere. It it suppresses it. Right. And I would say this is what we do with, with cancer all the time. Like if our body's working correctly, if our immune system's working correctly, we're suppressing cancer because it comes up all the time. If a society is working correctly, it's suppressing fascism, homophobia, racism, xenophobia, all those things. Right. If it's not, it's letting tumors grow and spread. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to now get into free speech absolutism. So yeah. he, here's the interesting thing that I, I think kind of comes up in this argument. So oftentimes when you think about free speech, I think for the most part, free speech advocates are terrified of gatekeeping because I think the thinking is, okay, if like, let's say some set or some group gets to decide of who you pretty much that they're the gatekeepers and who gatekeeps, uh, they're going to suppress speech that maybe I'd want to talk about. So a lot of times, like, let's say, uh, let me see. I guess I want to phrase this in a way that's as respectful as possible, because uh, I really love like I was going to because I want to talk about Michael Shermer. So I love Michael Shermer. Uh, so Michael Shermer's I, and we've had him on the show multiple times and you're really grateful for that. Uh, so but to, with Michael Shermer, the thinking is, is that if you're talking about um, it, it, so Michael Shermer is really against wokeness, which I'm obviously not. Uh, so Michael Shermer's fear is that, OK, well, here's sort of on the far left. He's, what he thinks is the fringes, even though it's definitely not. People are going to sort of start suppressing things that I believe. Right. So he's really into. Uh, 
uh, pretty much banning transgender athletes in certain sports. And I think the idea is like, oh, okay, if like, you know, we sort of silence free speech, what's going to happen if this particular pet cause of mine uh, gets overlooked, right? So his idea is, okay, now we're going to just battle uh, bad ideas with good ideas, right? Is this understanding that anything should be up for a debate and everything should be up for scrutiny. And then essentially we could just like kind of work it out some way, right? Uh, if we just sort of talk it out on some public forum, eventually things will work out and we don't have to actually silence free speech. So that's a way to kind of bypass the argument altogether. So free speech absolutists would say, well, you know, we're all pretty rational. And, and Shermer hates when people would, let's say, talk talk down to either, not necessarily him, but people who might either agree with him, people who are against free speech. Uh, so they would talk about infantilizing, you know? So Shermer would say, okay, how is it fair that you're infantilizing a set of people and saying, well, you can't handle the truth? And there is some, there's some rationale to that. It makes a lot of sense. But the thing is, okay, how, but then where do we end, right? So, okay, so Shermer would say, well, we never end, right? So every idea should be out in the kind of out in the public forum and then nobody should be infantilized. But my thinking is, is that really true though? Can we say that, okay, so like Nazi ideas should be allowed to proliferate because people are just able to make up their minds. So, okay, so, you know, kind of going back to you, Barry, how would you kind of, what would your stance be in this respect in terms of free speech absolutism? Can we beat bad ideas all the time with good ideas? Or in this case, should the, right, or should the environment sort of take, rein them in a little bit more yeah um no i'm 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 really uh opposed to that position um and my answer is somewhat complex which is that i look to kind of uh ancient understandings like ancient greek understandings of different discourse arenas right so that um there's one arena called forensics which is discovering what the truth is Okay, uh, and there are certain methods developed for discovering what the truth is, right? And so, you know, we might say that like fingerprints are a form of forensic, uh, a method of forensic knowledge. Um, and, you know, once there's a sort of consensus around that, um, deb debating it all the time doesn't make sense. Like, you know, because then you get into these arguments like, um, you know, how do we know the earth is old or not flat or something like that? It's because, well, to a certain extent, we have to trust our forensic, uh, the, the forensic methods that have been developed so far, um, which have been reliable for hundreds of years, thousands of years, right? Um, and the next is dialectic. So dialectic is um, to, you know, submit, um, a belief uh, to to scrutiny, okay. And again, there's methods that have been tried for hundreds of years, thousands of years to do that. Um, there's the the confusion about speech is to think that it's all the same, right? right. Um, what people are mostly talking about when they say speech is they're referring to either rhetoric. Or um, which is you know another level beyond dialectic. That's the question then of sharing what you learned in forensics and dialectics. And um, another one uh, which is um, uh, blanking on the term. It's a Greek term. It means basically um, the the battlefield of mm -hmm. ideas. So. You know, within rhetoric, you have different traditions. For example, there's a tradition of dialogue. A dialogue is a respectful exchange of information in which people are willing to change their beliefs based on 
a preponderance of evidence, maybe what Andy Norman would call, you know, the um, uh, the not, uh, reasons fulcrum, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that requires people to sort of have an environment of trust um, and willingness and a certain familiarity with the processes of dialogue. What we have in our media and social media and mass media is, oh yeah, I remember the term now, heuristics, E-R-I-S-T-I-C-S. -I -I so heuristics means battle and it's a substitute for physical battle, right? So the, the, the point is to dominate and to disarm and mm -hmm. defeat your opponents. Doesn't matter if you're right. Um, and so we're in an environment where heuristics is what people think when they say speech, this is what they think of as heuristics, right? We're gonna have a battle. Right. Um, to so me, it's in bad it's in bad faith, I think is what you're saying a lot of times. Well, a lot of the time, I mean, you can enter heuristics with good faith, but the mm -hmm. point is you might be defeated by someone in, who's yeah. in bad faith. But um, the point is that what's really important to have a healthy society are these other things, right? It's, it's forensics, dialectic, it's rhetoric, it's dialogue. Uh, and if you put all your eggs in heuristics, uh, and ignore the other stuff, you're going to get a really sick society. Right. Uh, and this is not the way to settle most questions is through heuristics, right? Most important questions are not settled through heuristics. No. Uh, and so um, how do you train or develop people's faculties in these other things? Um, now, the other thing I want to say is I do believe that there can be room for free speech absolutism, but it has to be in a very contained space. And I would put it this way. If you're working with biological pathogens, you wanna do it in a lab where there's safety precautions, safety equipment and training and all that kind of stuff, right? Same thing with pathological ideas. Yes, we should be able to look at them. Yes, we should be able to talk about them, but it should be in a very, um, you know, special place where uh, we can do it uh, safely. And here's the thing about woke, quote unquote, is I don't think woke is against that, right? I think I would consider myself woke and I, I refer to the term, it was introduced by Leadbelly, um, the, the blues and folk artist in the 1930s. And he used the term um, as a, 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 in a message to black people who were traveling through the South. He said, um, stay woke because there's lynchings going on, right? Um, I just, he's, and he literally followed up. He said, keep your eyes open. Okay, so to be woke just means to be alert and in particular means to be alert to social injustice. So there's nothing inherently anti-woke in looking at Nazi literature and looking at say, you know, Nazi message boards or something like that, but in a space that's like a laboratory where that stuff can be treated properly where you're wearing gloves and you're, you know, essentially you've got your suit on that mm. you can look at the stuff. You can bring in an actual Nazi and have them talk, you know, whatever, but it has to be that kind of space where it's safe enough to deal with this material so that it doesn't sort of escape and proliferate. Right. That's what I'm saying. So, 
Yeah. So it's my complex answer to the speech question. Um, yeah. No, the, this, the, yeah, this is something that essentially, right, if, if you allowed any, anything to be said, uh, you know, especially on a mass scale, I mean, uh, yeah. the consequences could be disastrous, right? I mean, especially in this age where, oh, if a piece of information becomes, you know, quote unquote viral, right, gets to enough people, ideas can spread like wildfire. That's right. always been the case yeah. uh, that ideas spread like wildfire, but now more so, right? Yeah. So there has to be some sort of a top-down kind of approach to how these ideas proliferate, right? Um, and then in regards to, you know, there being a place or a lab, so to speak, where people can maybe um, have discourse on uh, certain pathological ideas or just alternative ideas, I suppose. Um, yeah, th th there's something cool. We've talked about it on the show before, too. Like, um, th there were these um, uh, debates hosted by, uh, I forgot the full name of this institution, but Pangburn or Pangburn. It's not Pangburn Classics. I, I always get them confused. It's not Pangburn. Penguin Classics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But no, but they had like, for example, uh, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, uh, other other figures, you know, from the, the intellectual dark web, whatever. Uh, oh. But But the idea is, what they would do is they would uh, employ this um, this uh, technique. Uh, we'll call it uh, steel manning, right? Where essentially, oh, uh, you, you would you would state what you believe is the other person's um, perspective that you disagree with, and essentially strengthen their argument, or at least show understanding of their argument. They would do yeah. the same thing back with you, and then yeah. there's sort of back and forth until at the end, there's not always but at least some sort of um some sort of integration of ideas at the end right and yeah, yeah, can I like can I, I just really want to quickly I want to add on to that. So to give uh, Michael Shermer some credit, this is something I wanted to say before. Uh, so he actually has kind of recanted and gone back on his stance on RFK at the very least, where he says, okay, well, technically he's never really willing to say he's wrong. He's not really looking at the evidence. So a lot of times his debating him does seem really pointless. And so, you know, now kind of piggybacking on what we're talking about. So, I mean, Barry, based on like what Alan is saying, what do you think of that idea of debating somebody who, you know, these people on these two extreme ends when let's say when even Michael Shermer would admit like, okay, yeah, RFK is never going to change his mind. So, I mean, does that matter then that like one person isn't going to change their mind? Should we only really focus on the audience with these types of debates? Should we even have them at all? There's a, the platforming issue. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. No, and I think platforming is a really important thing that, you know, it's platforms are important and should be protected. And it's very easy to debase them. You know, uh, look at what happened recently with CNN, where they had a town hall with Trump and that debased their platform to such an extent that, you know, the the um, the CEO or whoever the guy was in charge of programming lost his job mm -hmm. and their ratings fell off a cliff. Um, and rightly so, you know, they polluted their platform. Um and partly, it wasn't just that they gave Trump a platform. It was that they stocked the audience with, um, you know, fanatical uh, Trump supporters. And it was seen as like a, a, a rally that they basically put on for free in which he just got to beat up on the interviewer. And um, so, again, it wasn't treated at all with respect. The platform was was disrespected. Um, and... So, you know, we have to protect 
our institutions from debasement uh, in the same way that we would protect our water supply from pollution. Um, and again, that doesn't mean we're not going to look at pollutants, but we don't want to look at them coming through our water supply. <laughs> you know, right. that's not the proper way to look at them. So um, platforms are extremely important. Um, and platforming, which is essentially the, you know, pressure to deny certain people a platform, uh, I see that as an entirely legitimate um, undertaking, you know. Uh, I've seen many times like uh, universities destroy their reputations by by putting totally, you know, toxic material on their stage or and, and what they're doing is they're giving legitimacy to it. Right. Um, and so the whole question of legitimizing and so on, it goes back to that point I made before about, you know, are we creating an uh, an environment that's conducive or hostile to pathological um, entities. And uh, we're responsible for that. We're absolutely yeah. responsible for that, yeah. And I think if you were to sort of uh, respond to Michael Shermer, I think the understanding yeah. here is that it's not so much that we're, or pe not we, whoever, right? Whomever is being infantilized, it's more like we can't really trust certain environments to allow the spread of ideas in a way that's conducive to overall health. So when Michael Shermer might say, well, you know, it's probably easy just to like beat a bad idea. And I guess from your perspective, you would say, well, it depends the context. It depends on where you're talking about, right? So if let's say we have, yeah, we, so the Ken Ham and Bill Nye debate is something we've talked about multiple times. I'll bring it up again because it's, I think, a great point. So it really depends on where you're listening. So I'm assuming most people who are listening in New York will probably say, yeah, obviously Bill Nye won. I mean, it's clear. But then if you take that debate and put it in like rural Kansas, most people would say, oh my God, Ken Ham killed him. This is terrible. So I think it's a very simplistic understanding to say that we're just infantilizing people. I guess your response would be no, because the environments matter. So it's not so much that we're infantilizing people. It's just in some environments, they haven't been inoculated against bad ideas. Therefore, if we put those, you right. legitimize a platform, those ideas would not maybe not necessarily spread because they're already there, but at the very least, they'll be reinforced. Yeah, right. I actually have a uh, sort of an this is a very underdeveloped idea. I thought this up a long time ago. I haven't thought about it since. But uh, this conversation sort of reminding me of this. Um, so, uh, Barry, what, what do you think about this idea? And Leon, too, why not? Uh, so <laughs> thanks. <laughs> why not? <laughs> no. So what if, uh, for example, so, you know, like, for example, T Tucker Carlson, let's say, I, I know he's not on uh, Fox News anymore, but for example, uh, on a, essentially a news platform, which should just be about, you know, just giving facts about things that occurred in the world or in your local area or in the United States, rather, um, he would also espouse opinions along with those uh, lots of facts yes. or opinions. pieces of information. Yeah. Uh, what if it was regulated that on news networks, you're only allowed to just give facts or just information, no opinion attached to the information. That could yeah. be interesting uh, yeah. because then you can't necessarily, it's not, a, it wouldn't be about swaying an audience to any particular side or point of view. It's just about just saying, this is what happened today or like the recently, local news, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um... I mean, definitely, I'm old enough to have grown up in the um, pre pre cable environment where there were essentially three news station, three stations. Period. Um, 
you know, ABS, ABC, CBS, and NBC, uh, and then PBS. Um, and uh, news was essentially identical on all of them. I mean, if you, if you change the channel to a different station, um, you were going to get a consensus view of reality, you know, right. and not a lot of opinion. I mean, when opinion happened, it was big news. Like, uh, you know, when, I, I don't know, like when I, it was opinion uh, in the news that sort of brought down Nixon, that sort of brought down um, McCarthy, you know, uh, when the news people said, look, I can't just report on this as fact anymore. This is just appalling, you know. Um, and uh, I think they were in their right to say that. Um, but um, yeah, I I also think, you know, and it, it is fair to point to the consensus at the time and say there were pathological elements to the consensus, right? I mean, there was a sort of like uh, consensus around the Cold War and that America was a force for good in the world that not that it didn't have elements of that, but but that it ignored, you know, um, the massacres and the things that it, like, and again, it was opinion that started to bring down the, the, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam that, you know, uh, up until that point, there really was consensus around American military action. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are, here, here's the word I would use is there are blind spots, right? And that it is fair if the opinion is developed in such a way that helps us understand our blind spots. Mm -hmm. But by and large, that's not the function of opinion, right? The by and large, the function of opinion is to create consensus within either, you know, one camp or two separate camps. Um, and this is, I guess, what we would call, in, in Elul's terms, we would call um, integrative propaganda. Mm -hmm. So when we hear the term propaganda, we most think of agitative, right? Which is like, uh, oh, Osama bin Laden is trying to convert me to, you know, Al-Qaeda ideology. That would be, you know, that's not my ideology, so that's definitely agitative. But the vast majority of what we experience in terms of propaganda is integrative. It's, it's saying that, you know, continue to believe what you believe, uh, continue to believe, for example, that American military adventurism is purely, you know, for the benefit of the world or something. Um, and sometimes it's necessary for opinion to um, challenge or, or um, you know, provoke uh, reaction to that consensus. So I'm not against opinion, I would say. Um, I do think that opinion has its place even in news media and that um, opinion should be guided by this principle of um, revealing, exposing, whatever you wanna call it, our blind spots, mm -hmm. uh, and not um, reinforcing positions of power for its own sake, right? That's um, fair. 
Yeah. So what's come up with that since you mentioned Tucker Carlson? Oh, yeah. And you did ask for my opinion. Uh, so what's so interesting is this has been the thing lately. So the rapper Ice Cube has really come under fire lately. So not only for because he's been uh, working or he was working with Trump while he was a president uh, to kind of end mass incarceration, uh, to work on pardoning, obviously, minorities, I mean, which is obviously a good thing. And he's gotten a lot of heat for it because obviously it's still Trump. And now he went on. I don't know if Tucker Carlson has a show. It's some social media platform that he uses. I don't think it's a show per se, but he went on this platform. Right. And and so Ice Cube's thing is like, yeah, well, it's just talking to people. So why would I not want to talk to you? And Tucker Carlson's like, yeah, you see, like, I'm not a bad guy. And Ice Cube's like, yeah, you're not a bad guy. So it's so interesting because it's so on the one hand, first of all, I like Ice Cube and I've always I mean, I've been a fan of his. So it's kind of it's sort of shitty. But then on the other hand, I can obviously also see why people really dislike him and now why they've also turned on him. But the thing with somebody like Ice Cube, and this is, I think, the problem is I think Ice Cube doesn't. This is why I on the one. hand, So it's kind of interesting because I'm kind of dual minded about it. On the one hand, I forgive Ice Cube because I'm like, I can see why mass incarceration is obviously an issue for you. I can see why working with Trump would have been important to you. But then on the other hand, when he's saying like, oh, well, Tucker Carlson is a nice guy. Rogan said that too. I forgot. I think it was Gad Saad. Uh, he was also on this podcast. He was like, yeah, Tucker Carlson's a nice guy. So I think it's stuff like that where they don't know enough about these people and they just end up meeting them. And they're like, oh, well, he was really nice to me. And, you know, why shouldn't I talk to him? We just have different beliefs. And Ice Cube said that on the podcast. Uh, whatever. I don't know if he has a podcast, whatever it is, some show. So Ice Cube said this on the show too, where he was like, yeah, we just have different beliefs. So why shouldn't we be able to talk about them? But I think the, the, the downside here is that for a lot of people first encountering Tucker Carlson through Ice Cube, I don't think they know what Tucker Carlson is actually about. Because of course, he's going to be nice to Ice Cube. He's a celebrity on his show. I mean, he's not going to like curse him out and tell him like, oh, I disagree with you and you're woke and your music is garbage. Even though I bet you anything, I, but Tucker Carlson thinks Ice Cube's music is garbage, which he's not going to obviously say on the show. So I think the danger here here is bringing so it's um it's so if you think about uh, we should maybe get into this territory maybe not if you think about like QAnon right so the idea of save the children it's like yeah obviously we should protect children from human trafficking but just like with something like Tucker Carlson or whatever there's some similarity here and I'm not saying I'm not exactly saying Tucker Carlson is QAnon, uh, but what I'm saying is that the the different the similarity here is that it's an introduction to something that's sort of dipping people's feet uh, into something that you know potentially gets worse and worse over time. So when Ice Cube introduces people to Tucker Carlson on the surface, it's like, oh well, here's this guy with just different ideas. And then as you kind of look into him more and more, I think that fear is that maybe people will become radicalized. Which obviously, if you just tell them on the surface, like, okay, here's what Tucker Carlson is all about, just like with the Save the Children's campaign. Oh, it's just a front for QAnon, maybe people will be like, oh, wow, I don't, I'm not interested in that shit. So I think that that would be the major problem is that it sort of slowly indoctrinates people into something that, again, like people like Ice Cube wouldn't even necessarily know. And look, maybe if Ice Cube knew more about him, he would just say, oh my God, wow, why the fuck did I go on this guy's show? But again, you know, that's, I think, the fear of the platform because that little by little people are like, oh, this isn't so bad. That's not so bad. And then little by little, they kind of get deeper and deeper into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, the word co-option yeah. comes to mind you know um and so being aware of the history and the practices of co-option over time um and and partly i would say you know uh, do i think there was some revolutionary or progressive elements of you know ice cubes music uh yes i think you could pick those out right but do I think he as a person is a progressive or something like that? I wouldn't say that ever. Um, you know, I, I, and and partly I think um, if you look at, uh, um, 
you know, kind of the, the, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, Tupac, yeah, I was thinking Tupac, you know, the sort of effort to recruit um, gangs into leftist politics, right, um, was a total failure. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can look at Tupac as a, the example of that. Um, and I'm not saying rap is compromised or hip hop music. I think that's different. But um, the kind of uh, valorization of gangs, right, was always there in Ice Cube's music. And yeah. um, all of the kind of, you know, violent, misogynistic, um, that, that kind of stuff was always there. So I'm not totally surprised um, at this recent development in his career. Um, plus, he's, you know, a, a media star who um, has been in television and movies and all these kinds of things. And he doesn't live in the same environment that ordinary people do. Um, uh, he's not just Jenny from the block, I guess. <laughs> Mm -hmm. J-Lo's line. Um, you <laughs> know, from the block. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, you've spent 40 years now as a rich celebrity. Um, yeah. And you come to rub shoulders with other people who are rich celebrities and you're not in the same world. Um, I, uh, again, what I would say is that that's co-option, um, that he was all never, you know, pr perfectly a uh, progressive figure, uh, and I wouldn't expect him to be, yeah. but that um, the atmosphere, the environment, to come back to that term, um, of sort of um, feeding and nurturing pathological beliefs has been there, you know, through gang culture, through kind of, you know, macho misogynistic um, uh, media culture, um has been encouraged and so on and the and the the gateway between that and trump is very wide open you know yeah um and so we have to be vigilant honestly we have to be very careful and the the, the word that comes to my mind is prudence and this is you know comes again from kind of ancient greek they saw that as the highest virtue so to be prudent meant, meant to um have a healthy goal and to not be distracted from that goal and to be wise about your steps along the way, mm -hmm. right? So if your goal is just to make money or to influence people or, you know, to be famous or whatever, well, that's not a prudent goal to begin with. Um, and then any step along the way is going to be corrupted. Um, if your goal is to improve life for yourself and other people, uh, and then you're careful about the steps you take along the way. That's, that's prudence. Wow. So, yeah. So yeah, I love that. And so this is kind of what I'm caught between. And I love that we're talking about this and you're bringing it up. So, I mean, I love hip hop and I also love professional wrestling, two industries that are so, oh my God, so caught up in just, I mean, you name it, right. Misogyny, racism, uh, sort of macho cultures, et cetera. And I mean, for a lot of us who grew up in these cultures, obviously we're going to love these genres, but the thinking here now is that we're, when I, 
we, you know, we've had several people from these industries on the podcast. I mean, uh, I still like watch wrestling. I still listen to those people, but yeah, man, it's still, it's a tight line to kind of walk because now I see that a lot of people are still in that. So yeah, Trump supporters, right? Pro wrestling is full of Trump supporters, just like uh, hip hop is full of Trump supporters. You'll like little Wayne is a Trump supporter and all of these people that you're thinking, wait, you know, you guys are supposed to rest, this, um, represent the kind of disaffected and disenchanted masses, but then here you are supporting rich people. So I kind of now wonder, is there a way to even disconnect the two? Because I think you're right. I think when people do become rich and they do become celebrities, what they do is they essentially kind of disconnect from mass culture. And what becomes more important for them is essentially sustaining their status. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to get lost in a society that the society itself has the wrong goals, right? The society itself sets the goals of, you know, personal wealth, domination, fame, right. you know, all those kinds of things. So to develop uh, a kind of, you know, holistic um, set of principles out of that, I mean, to me, it's nearly impossible, but I, there are elements, I mean, within hip hop, there are elements that can point you to, to that. Um, uh, so, you know, I particularly like, um, you know, the kind of trip hop stuff that was happening in the nineties, for example, that, um, seemed to me to be much more, um, you know, it was like they were really getting into jazz and uh, they, there were a lot more female singers and there were a lot more, you know, kind of um, thoughtful uh, lyrics and, uh, you know, but but the point who, too here is that um, atmosphere is really important, you know, uh, and, and I think about this in relation to music and other kinds of arts atmosphere is the environment in which certain things thrive and other mm -hmm. things are discouraged mm -hmm. right and we have to think about politics as uh, having this aesthetic component um and we ignore that because here's what people on the left ignore that and what happens is people on the right are all about that mm -hmm. and so things like pro wrestling and and race cars and you know uh, uh rodeos and all that yeah, kind football of stuff. Yeah, yeah football all that kind of stuff ties aesthetics with politics um you know and and the left doesn't hardly do that at all um and that's a mistake that's a mistake because aesthetics and politics are incredibly important i mean that's hitler realized that stalin realized yeah. that um but we need to yeah. focus on it uh, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting to go this direction, but you could you could argue like uh, Hollywood, like uh, actors or anything like sort of tied to acting is sort of, you know, liberals sort of have that sort of aesthetic in, in the arts, like in that direction, yeah. I suppose. Uh, but actually, that's not even what I was going to say what I wanted to say. in a, uh, So in terms of um, what we can do um, on a societal level, uh, essentially, like if if. if on one level, yes, it's important that we um, develop our belief assessment tools, right? Uh, that we do things like uh, podcasts, hope they become viral. People uh, learn about critical thinking, and hopefully this causes like ripple effects. And it's a that's a beautiful thing if, if that can happen, right? But in terms of what we can do as a society, I'm wondering, um, so in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, gatekeeping, 
social media, right? Okay, so that's definitely one thing. Uh, uh, now, I was wondering uh, what you think about this, uh, and I know uh, I know you're looking at the time, right? So no, no, I'll, don't worry, yeah, the, the, just checking. But um, so what if uh, we've also talked about this on the show too? What if like um, so you know the, that we have uh, these these algorithms essentially on these social media sites that. Uh, maximize for time on site they'll keep showing you the same types of things that you like um, and essentially you'll keep seeing those things and it's sort of in terms of politics at least uh, yeah. that creates an echo chamber and then you don't get exposed to other levels of thought right, right, right. I, I was one yeah I was wondering if um, maybe regulating um, the algorithms that are used uh, in terms of uh, social media sites might be one of those ways to sort of solve for this polarization issue on a societal level. Uh, I'm not sure to what degree, though, because I understand there's a marketing incentive to showing you the things that you like. Oh, right. dopamine builds yeah. up. Oh, I love this. I'm going to stay on this platform. Oh, all the advertisers are on this platform. This works for us as a company right. to, you know, have these advertisers here and people looking at our stuff all the time. Right. So I'm not sure what the balance would be to still have something that's right. good for society, but um, that seems like one direction to sort of go. Yeah. And right. how would, and how would prudence factor in? Uh, yeah. So, so here's my thought about this is that since really the age of mass media, which I would say begins with the printing press uh, and then certainly picks up over time with other technologies like photography, audio recording, you know, the airwaves and so forth. Um, we've been living in an uncontrolled social experiment, right? We release this stuff into the wild. We allow um, essentially predatory actors to be in charge of it. And then we just see what happens. Okay. What happens with millions and billions of people when you just release this stuff and you know, the answer is a lot of bad shit happens, right? Yeah. You, have, you have genocides and all kinds of things that result from this uncontrolled social experiment. Um, and that's why I, I think this medical model is really important. You know, um, I'm not arguing for a technocratic elite that's going to study all this stuff and decide what gets released and what doesn't. I would much rather have the society think about it as a whole um, and think about what do we want, right? But the problem is you can't think about it once your mind has already been changed by the technology that you're using, right? Uh, that's like saying, you know, you're going to, uh, you know, consult with heroin addicts about whether, you know, about drug policy when they're still in active addiction, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, you know? Um, and so partly what we need to do is allow ourselves to take a step back uh, and have a position of assessment. And here's what I think that would look like, okay? I think that it should involve more education in which we train ordinary people how to be propagandists, mm -hmm. how, to, how to be manipulators, how mm -hmm. to use things like algorithms to, you know, to, to, to uh, in an abusive way. And again, this has an ancient tradition to it, which in rhetoric, which is essentially, you know, 
gotten this reputation as a dark art, right? Um, you had to practice rhetoric uh, to learn the illicit or dark side of it, you know, so that you wouldn't be taken in by that, but also then you could make a distinction between that and the productive, you know, pro-social uses of rhetoric. I think the exact same thing is true of algorithms and of mass media, that we really need people to learn how to be manipulators of this stuff so that they can kind of look under the hood, see how it's made, see how it works, um, know then when they're being fooled and know then the distinction between healthy and unhealthy uses of these tools. Because the tools themselves, again, like, you know, print, obviously, like you can have a print book that's absolutely wonderful and conducive to life, or you can have one that's, you know, totally destructive, like Mein Kampf or something. Um, you know, print isn't inherently good or bad, uh, but but we have to learn sort of what uh, what it is and how it works. And the same thing with all this other media. So literacy, I would say, is very important. And we have to learn the dark arts. And yeah. the, bring me to Harry Potter, right? Like that the Harry Potter thing is, you know, you have to learn not only the good magic, but the bad magic, you know, so... No, I love that. I I have a doubt that brings me to here. Then I should ask this. Do you think that's happening now, at least on an amateur like level? Why I say that is because um, this is sort of influencer culture, right? It's actually quite popular. Like uh, if you ask a lot of kids what they want to be in the future. Well, I'm sorry. I don't I can't quantify this. I don't have any metrics to support this. I'm sorry. It seems like a lot of people want to be influencers and there are a lot of them and people are trying to become yeah, it's famous. A form of famous. Yes. And right. And, and make these videos and try to appeal uh, to a mass audience. Right. On some level, you could almost argue what you're suggesting is sort of happening now, just not in a, it's, I mean, it, it's not structural. It's not like people are being taught explicitly. This is, you know, this is uh, how you manipulate someone or or rather, you know, dark yeah. psychology or whatever you want to call it. But uh, okay. it is kind of happening, which is uh, yeah. maybe hopeful, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I would see that more as sort of monkey see, monkey do, rather than a structured way of understanding yeah. the dark arts. You know, um, so like, um, I guess there's, show, I haven't really watched it yet, so I'll have to check it out, but how to be a cult leader. Oh, it's so uh, good. I just yeah. finished watching that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, I think that kind of thing is perfect for helping people defend themselves or recognize, you know, what's going on, which in no way means that someone watching that show couldn't then become a cult leader based on those lessons, right? Right, true. Um, but we are generally inoculating the society by and large by giving them that information. Um you know, um, teaching people how the Nazis came to power, I think, um, you know, it wasn't just a spontaneous thing. Uh, it took years to sort of plant those ideas and to, I like the idea of, uh, or the, the metaphor of uncovering rocks, right? So how did the Nazis really came, come to power? The answer is that they allowed things that had been suppressed to be released so they uncovered the rocks and allowed the, the the undergrowth of pathologies to to grow up and produce monsters um so 
the argument there is that, well, the, the monsters are always there. They're always, you know, we might say the monsters within, right? This is the horror movie analogy. Um, but when a society is functioning well, when an individual person's functioning well, we suppress that. Hmm. Uh, and it's just like those cancers that our body is suppressing all the time. And when we don't, they pop out, Pandora's box opens, and we're, you know, in the situation we're in now. Where yeah. And, and, and I think running amok. Yeah. So. And I think and I think the beauty with that information becoming a little bit more kind of viral mainstream, whatever term you want to use, is even the title of that show, How to Become a Cult Leader. I think some people, probably very few people, will watch it and say, Oh, great, I now can learn how to become a cult leader. But I think the the vast the vast majority of people who are watching it are going to be thinking, Oh, great, this is how I immunize myself against cult leaders. So what's going to probably happen is yes, you'll have more people who have that insight, but then on top of that, you'll have even more people who will be inoculated against somebody like that, kind of coming to power, obviously taking advantage of them, et cetera. So I think the idea is if we're talking about like net wins or losses, yeah, it's probably a net positive to have information like that out there, of course. I, I would say like my most satisfying moments teaching, which are also some of the most disturbing moments I've had teaching is when students have come up to me and said, I'm in a cult. Wow. And that's happened probably half a dozen times. Um, and uh, they've made drastic life decisions based on what they're exposed to in class, which is precisely this, you know, sort of like how to be a cult leader stuff. Um, and some of them, you know, said, oh, like, you know, the, the, define the cult as Jehovah's Witness or whatever, you know, uh, they're in and they didn't recognize it until that moment. Um, and uh you know, it's, it's, but the, the other thing that I think about is, oh my God, this is a lot of responsibility, right? If a person mm -hmm. comes up and says this, it means their whole life is going to change. Right. And what have I done, you know, um, there was one case where a, a woman in my class, uh, she was Saudi and she said, you know, um, I've decided based on this class, I'm, I'm divorcing my husband. Wow. You know, and that, I don't get in front of, my class and say, you know, you should divorce your husband, leave your family or whatever, leave your church. I just say like, here's how manipulation works. Mm -hmm. um, and then people take it and they do these things with it. But um, the, and, and this is going back to the first, you know, early conversation about denial and delusion. This is why people have denial and delusion in the first place is that making those decisions is painful and costly. There's no way to, you know, get out of a marriage, even an abusive, horrible one that I can think of that's not costly um, or or to leave a cult, you know, and to to leave people you care about behind or your identity, you know. Um, and so it's we choose denial because we want to avoid the suffering that goes with the recognition of a reality that we would prefer not to not to accept um and so yeah there's something very uh, and i guess we've talked you i'm sure you've talked about ipc you know identity protective cognition um oh we haven't no what is that? oh you haven't okay so oh oh, oh i'm assuming this on is some level yeah yes, yeah not not, not, that exact, not that term yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so right right, right. Okay. essentially you identify with your beliefs right 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 yeah yeah mm -hmm. so it's always it, there's always a kind of loss that 
uh, it's almost like a grief, like a death, you yeah. know, if you mm -hmm. have to, um, if you have to leave behind something you've considered a core part of your identity. And so people will protect their um, identities. Uh, and it's weird what sorts of beliefs people consider to be core to their identities. Um, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it might just mean identification with some, you know, pop singer or something is so core to my identity, I can't leave it behind, you know, fandom uh, mm -hmm. is one example. But um, people can be, you know, have their identity around all kinds of, and it's not always unhealthy, right? I mean, sometimes having your identity be structured in such a way that, I mean, it's, it's good to have mentors, right? It's good to have people you look up to that you admire, that you trust. Um, yeah. And, uh, but you have to recognize if you're being steered wrong, if, if you're being abused, if you're being misled, um, and then know that you've got to get out. Um, yeah. yeah. That's very painful. Yeah. Yeah. Since you mentioned Tupac, actually, first of all, I love Tupac. Uh, but second of all, like it's such a great example too, because I think for a lot of people, they end up riding the fence where they don't really pick one set of values over the other. So the best example of like with Pac, I mean, he obviously, and this is obviously well known. This is not meant to be insulting in any way. A lot of his lyrics were garbage. I mean, he made a lot of misogynistic music. A lot of it was about sort of gangs. He actually got into gang culture later on in his life. I mean, this is all pretty much well known. But the thing is, there was always a fluctuation between that kind of militant mindset and of, you know, more community base, uh, trying to help people, trying to figure out kind of what works or what's best for the community, uplifting, maybe spiritually uplifting, whatever, you know, kind of term you want to use. But I think the point with Pac was that he constantly vacillated back and forth between the two. And uh, there's this movie about him called All Eyes on Me. And in the film, in the film, I don't know if this like really happened, but at least it was a part of the film. Uh, his mom in the movie, Afini, she says, they're going to give you all of the tools that you need to destroy yourself. And he kind of heard that, but didn't really take it seriously. And obviously toward the end, that's exactly what happened. So what's interesting, I think, is that a lot of us do fluctuate between these two systems. And I would argue because of, you know, what you're saying, Barry, is because of the environments that we're in. So Pac said this, and I love this quote, even though it's kind of horrendous and also incredibly sad. He said, and this was when he was on MTV, uh, he did this interview where he was on Venice Beach, whatever, it was a really good long interview. And it, he was really in-depth and he mentioned a lot about his life. And he said, look, man, you can't be an angel when you're living in hell. So, and you know, the kind of interviewer at the time, she was kind of taken aback by it. She's like, wow, like, is that, is that your life? Like, that's where you live? And he's like, yeah. It's very kind of Machiavellian. So I think for him, as much as he wanted to uplift people, again, he kind of vacillated back to fortune and fame because he realized, okay, if I'm going to do this, you know, this kind of culture is going to eat me alive. So I, again, I don't know what the resolution to that is. I mean, it seems like environmental change is a big factor, but what? yeah, no, you, you just said it. Envi yeah. environment. How, how can I be an angel in hell? It's, yeah, it's, right. it's even there in the right, right. But, but I think what makes it so, so difficult is that, you know, at least in, obviously in his lifetime, there was nothing about it that was going to change. So I, I don't know. I, I think, then, but my point was to say that I think a lot of people are stuck in that in-between state where a lot of time, and you know, we can even point to cultures where, um, let's say, I don't know, imagine if you are living somewhere in the deep South and let's say you're the one person who isn't a racist and then you're in an environment of people who are like, how do you kind of navigate that? I mean, you're not just going to move to like, I don't know, LA or New York city, obviously. So I don't know. And even if you were a social chameleon, how do you fit in Yeah, yeah. Right, or whatever? That's that's a different conversation there, I suppose. But. Uh, you know, I live in Florida, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can, that I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah, and and uh, I think of uh, Theodore Adorno here, who said, you know, um, how do I stay healthy or sane in a sick society, right? Um, and really the answer is you can't. 
um, because the environment is going to get you because you're this big and the environment you're in is an ocean, right? And so um, the solution then is common cause, right? It's, it's truly people working together to change their environment. Um, and no one person can do it, right? Um, and we do it primarily through our institutions. So I am really a big, big fan of like the um, movements, for example, of ex-gang members who mm -hmm. are trying to help gang members get out of gangs. Um, and uh, similarly with um, uh, right-wing extremists, like people who were in, you know, Klan and Nazis or whatever, who uh, form groups to try to help others get out of these groups. And to me, these are kind of the, this is kind of the embodiment of like, we have to, yes, we're in a sick society. We can't get well on our own. We have to make common cause with others. We have to look at the darkest stuff imaginable, you know, like we're not dealing with angels at all here. Right. Yeah. And yet the belief that I did it, you can do it. Um, and, and we need to do it. Um, is really powerful. O oftentimes when I talk to, like a lot of people talk to me and say, you know, someone in my family has gone down this dark rabbit hole, you know, what should I do? Um, and I often say, well, there's nothing you can do really. Cause the only people who have any kind of, um, could have any kind of input to them, uh, are people like them. Right. Um, and so that's why they might listen to someone like, like Derek Black, who, um, you know, converted from neo-Nazism to now anti-racism. Um, you might listen to Derek Black when you're not going to listen to, say, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 Ken e e Ibram Kendi, you know, you're not going to listen to him, but you might listen to Derek Black. So, um, and you might not listen to Derek Black. I mean, the thing is that it's it, it partly what I, it, the other point I wanted to make about this is that an ounce of prevention is sure worth a pound of cure. It's mm. sure, sure better to prevent people from going down rabbit holes than it is to try and get them out of one. Um, inoculation works before you encounter the pathogen, right? You, it, you can't get the vaccine for, uh, you know, I don't know, polio if you've got polio you know it's right. not gonna, it's not going to cure you so um this whole idea of vaccination is only preventive um the cure stuff is mostly not going to work if it is going to work it's usually costly long-term painful intrusive you know deeply uncomfortable um and and so on so a lot of people concerned about these kind of questions they keep asking me about cures and i keep talking about prevention so um that's where we kind of you know yeah. it's not that i'm against looking at cures i am i am for that because it's very costly for anyone to continue down these rabbit holes but yeah you know. yeah so and the corollary here for psychotherapy or in psychotherapy would be that it's much easier to prevent trauma than it is to heal it so i love that idea and i feel like this is a kind of great spot to uh, wrap it up on all right, Alan, final questions for Barry before we go. Absolutely. Uh, Barry, if you wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, where can we do that? Well, um, probably the best 
place to look would be on either uh, ResearchGate or Academia, which is um, the places for people to share their um, published uh, research and, and writing. Um, and so most of my writing is freely available. Uh, you can just look up my name on either of those places. And if you look up my name, you'll also find out that I'm a musician and I've got some records out and some stuff like that. So you can oh, check that's out. awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right, Barry. Thank you so much, man. This was excellent. This One of my awesome. favorite shows thank of the you. year. Oh, appreciate that. I really enjoyed doing this show. You guys are great. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Thank you.